Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. This episode is a live panel from the Austin portion of this year's Texas Venture Crawl, put on by the Texas Venture Alliance, in partnership with Q Branch. I was joined by Caitlin Bernardo, partner and head of platform at Next Coast Ventures, and Aaron Perman, partner at S3 Ventures, to discuss catalyzing innovation in Austin. Our conversation ranges from the changes to the VC operating model, the role of community, and what it will take for our region to become a superstar hub. Caitlin, Aaron, welcome to Austin Next. Excited to be here. This is going to be really fun here at the Texas Venture Crawl. And I think a great way for us to start off talking about catalyzing innovation here in Austin is let's talk about you guys' firm and what you guys do. So, Caitlin, can you start off by talking about Next Coast and what the firm is and the sectors you guys invest in? Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Caitlin DiBernardo with Next Coast Ventures. We're an early-stage venture firm here in Austin, Texas, about $500 million of assets under management. Early-stage investors, technology investors, we... Our typical check is in the Series A range, but we also do seed in Series B. We've got a uh, thematic way of approaching investments, I'd say. We have investment themes, but generalist investors, and we've been around since 2016. Aaron, talk to me about S3. Be there. Aaron Berman, a partner at S3 Ventures, a venture capital firm also based in Austin. Firm's been around 18 years with 900 million under management. We're the largest firm that's in Texas and focused on Texas-based uh, entrepreneurs. Typically investing at the seed series A and series B stages, focused on uh, B2B software as well as uh, consumer digital experiences and healthcare tech. So we can just say we've seen quite a bit of acceleration in technology and innovation over the last couple of years, just a tiny bit. Can you each talk about one trend that has really impacted your firm and your portfolio? Maybe I'll start. And, and one thing maybe to distinguish. So I'm a partner, but I'm the head of platform. So I'm really focused with supporting the existing portfolio from kind of term sheet all the way through their growth. I think this will be an interesting podcast because Aaron's on the investing side of the house and I'm more on the portfolio growth side of the house. So, I mean, I, I, I'd be remiss like not to say AI is the, the obvious answer there, but I think I'll put a little bit of a different lens on it and talk about maybe the ways in which our existing portfolio are implementing AI to improve their operations, for example. I'd say one would be, which I can kind of generalize across the portfolio, is the ability to take unstructured data, whether it be from sales calls, product discovery calls, or for our healthcare businesses, doctor's notes, take a lot of unstructured data, automatically tag it, and turn it into structured data that's actually actionable. And we've seen that across the portfolio. Kind of the second case, I'd say, in, in general, is just the speed and efficiency with which like Copilot from GitHub or specific AI tools has sped up the pace of software development. Just seeing a lot of our companies deliver on their product roadmaps quickly and more effectively. And then the third bucket I'd say is more in the natural language processing or like conversational AI. A lot of our companies have, whether they use chatbots on the existing website or any ability to interface and actually digest human language back. If you've noticed on a lot of websites, those chatbots have gotten a lot better. Yeah. So unstructured data and being able to make it actionable and natural language processing, we've heard about that for years. Is it really the LLMs that have actually made that flip possible? It made it reality? From my perspective, from someone who's not deeply technical, 
a lot of those technologies are just more readily available for the non-technical user. Mm. So whether that be because you have a deeply technical team that's been doing it for a long time, in our case, that's often not the case, but there's a tool off the shelf that allows them to do that. For example, there's a tool called Lavender. It's not a portfolio company, but it's a tool we often see our companies using. It has like drastically changed the way that SDRs and BDRs do outbound emailing using an AI model. So now, while the AI technology may have been there for some time, there's a tool like very easy to implement, very easy to understand, very easy to procure, frankly, to put that into place. Does it make how we staff these companies differently? I mean, a, a story I've told recently, I, I can't code, not technical at all. And just for the podcast, I have a website that takes in HTML code. I have actually started using ChatGPT to create HTML code for the website, and it does it in seconds in exactly what I want, which is just mind-blowing to me. So are you actually seeing like them being able to scale at a faster rate because these tools are actually able to implement, as you said, these non-technical founders, these non-technical teams? For sure. I mean, I think there's twofold there. There's the, the speed with which companies can do things or the ability to make individuals more efficient. There's also the ability to make someone that was previously like uh, a B grade software developer and kind of elevate them to an A. But then also the backdrop of the macroeconomic environment where we're, companies are already trying to be, you know, do more with less, get to profitability faster. So for example, you know, we have a company in the portfolio that writes a lot of what appears like a custom landing page for SEO purposes. And using ChatGPT in a Python script was able to write like thousands of these pages in a matter of days, which otherwise would have taken like hiring multiple content writers to write pages like that. What do you, you say, Aaron? I, th I think just the speed of doing everything. I mean, the speed of building a business is just so much faster than it was even five to seven years ago, you know, to the point off the shelf toolkits, your speed of iteration. So being able to iterate on your MVP, find product market fit to launch and test new features is so much faster. And I think it's not just developers. It's like you said, sales and marketing, writing content faster, financial planning. There's just so much automation. And I think, you know, we're seeing that in our portfolio where it's, you're not necessarily having significantly smaller teams at each stage, but those teams are doing things two, three, four times faster. Uh, you know, I think like our portfolio company build force is growing super fast and you know, they're a marketplace company. We invested in a company favor, uh, you know, that got uh, exited about five years ago to HEB that was also a marketplace company. And I'm seeing that like BuildForce is building similar functionality three to five times faster with wow. the same times, you know, size of the team. You look at like our investments, you know, we're seeing that in our portfolio and then we're investing in those companies like Liquibase is automating database releases, RPO is automating disaster recovery. Our portfolio company Hydraulics enables higher speed uh, analytics and, and better observability. You know, Vidia automates content, uh, you know, product documentation. And so we're seeing the automation from both the uh, portfolio company angle and then also in the portfolio companies we're investing in that are enabling faster speed of building a business. But if the speed and everything is, is increasing, how does that change the competitive dynamics? Because you can see then the startup that you didn't see doesn't exist in two years is suddenly coming for the company that you've invested in. So that's a great point. I think that if you're a, a vertical SaaS company where you don't have some sort of deep tech innovation, the moat of just writing code has gone down. And so I, I think it, it means that it's great that these things enable faster innovation, but if you, you plan on uh, having like a technical moat, you have to have some real technical innovation that isn't just using an off the shelf toolkit 
you know, or it means that you have to basically build faster, acquire customers faster, build network modes, build other types of product modes. I, I think the other thing that's the countervailing force is there's less capital available. And so, you know, one of the most frustrating things in the world in 2021, you might have had an imminently rational portfolio company with great, with, with, that wanted to have good unit economics, and they were getting outspent on marketing by a competitor popped up that would raise a big round that like had a worse product and was clearly losing money for every customer they were acquiring. And so the, the, the countervailing force is that I think in the next few years, it'll actually be better for thoughtful, rational, experienced operators because they won't have to compete with uh, a flood of money being spent inefficiently. But if you're not open AI or building a quantum computer, what's a technical moat that you're able to build? Yeah, I think, I think like there, there are product moats, right? So in uh, a marketplace, there might be network effects uh, around, or, you know, or supply and demand dynamics. I think th there might be unique insights, like you've come from industry and you have unique user insights that someone could raise a bunch of money, but it doesn't mean they can actually build the right product, right? And so I, I would frame it as not just pure technical moats, but there are other product moats you can build, but just being a year ahead or two years ahead that that's, I think, going to be less and less important. Being ahead, though, and just trying to take that out, is we've seen, and one of, the, one of the questions out there about things like generative AI is, are these technologies that are actually going to go to the incumbents? Is, is the Googles and Amazons the one who are really going to benefit? So if the speed and those kind of will be, they've already got the, the head, they've got the capital. So do you see that? Or do you see the startups being able to still take advantage of this? Oh, startups are wild to take advantage. I think you got to bifurcate that. There's uh, the generative AI infrastructure players. And I think to your point, you have your incumbents that Google and Amazon and Microsoft have invested in. You have some of your large open source um, as well. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that market shakes out and there ends up being Every cloud provider has one. There's a few big open source ones, et cetera, right? But then there's the usage of those to bring additional functionality. And you look at like, you know, in our portfolio, you, we, we have a, a company, Interplay Learning, that like within weeks uh, of public availability had already integrated uh, some of the LLMs for content creation, right? Our company, Plural, that does policy tracking, within weeks, again, already integrated it for legislative summaries. And so I think startups are wildly taking advantage in that they're able to take those kind of tools, just like they take everything else from the cloud providers that are available to build product faster, integrate it into their product. And these are features that like five years ago would have been like a whole company's worth of development effort. So I think startups are developing wildly. And yes, the big incumbents will get like the infrastructure part of the value chain, but there's a lot more of the application part of the value chain for them to benefit from. No, and it's definitely about, I think, fast adoption of these type of tools. I was telling you guys beforehand, you know, I was wanting to do some work as I got home from an event last night, and then I opened up ChatGPT, and I saw that I got access to Dolly with ChatGPT, and there went sleep as I started playing with it. I want to see how these different technologies and trends affect the operating model of VC itself. So, Caitlin, you're head of platform, which has been a growing and changing role. So, can you first describe what that actually means? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a role that has evolved and come more to the forefront, but I would say there are other, are other firms out there that just use other terms. Like if you took, there's some big Silicon Valley based firms that might have 500 people at the fund and only a hundred are investors. So technically anyone else that is supporting the portfolio, if you just work at a big fund, you might be, I am the like go-to 
growth stage pricing analysts, but they're also on the platform. It just so happens when you're when you're under that billion dollar AUM mark or even smaller than that, you often see single platform teams like myself as the head of platform. So I think part of that is involved from not so much what's happened in the last year or two, but in the in the run up of the five years prior, a lot of dry powder and just venture firms looking for a bit of a different way to differentiate from not, you know, yes, all money is green, but, you know, we really want to be a partner to our company. We want to offer, you know, partner level support to them in addition to just, you know, our, our GP taking a board seat. So what does then the partner role actually yeah, do? Yeah, so I'd say me, fun like every platform role can be quite different across the venture firms. There are some that are very marketing heavy and that can be marketing for the fund itself, but also being almost like a CMO for the company to help the company get off the ground. There's some that are very like talent heavy. If you think about what are the key components of building a successful early stage business, some are very talent heavy. I almost can be a outsourced recruiter, like a you know kind of joint resource, the portfolio to help them hire. I'm a generalist by background. Prior to Next Coast, I worked at a company in Austin called WorkRise. I was there from like the 50th employee post Series A all the way to 900 employees. So I kind of take more of the lens of I'm a little bit deep in probably six different functional areas. So how can I help you? And so putting that more tactically, like take the finance function, for example. Most startup founders don't have a strong finance muscle. Maybe, you know, occasionally we come across someone who is a banker by background and now they're a startup founder, but that's not usually the case. At least at Next Coast 2, we're the type of entrepreneur we often invest in. They're not typically very strong in finance by background. So what does that mean? They could not have someone to lean on and kind of have to build that muscle themselves, or they can lean on me to do that for them. And frankly, I'm happy to do that. I'd rather help that company set up the proper finance function so that we benefit as Nexcos as the investor, but also the company benefits because something they have to worry about. And so what does that mean exactly? It can be everything from um, helping them think about should they outsource finance or they should hire someone in-house. And if they do, should they have, if they're about to you know, raise a $10 million fund, should they have an operating account and investing account? And how should they think about that? Some companies, if you have simple enterprise vanilla SaaS, the finance function doesn't matter quite as much. There are three standard tools, you put them in place, but we invest in some businesses that have a more complicated business model. Maybe it's a platform where there's enterprise SaaS to the business, there's a consumer-facing app that pays on usage, and so finance can get kind of complicated. Do you see, is the platform role or function much more oriented towards early stage? I obviously know the, you know, the venture services model as you think about like injuries and Horowitz and as being yep. one of the ones who kind of, whether they originated it or just taking it to the 500, 600 person, or is it, or do you see it just evolving as you get to grow growth stage? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say what I've seen at least from the, the earliest of funds, which also tend to be smaller in size, you have to think about how much can the management fee support. They're often also not writing large checks, pricing the round, taking a board seat. A lot of seed funds typically write a lot of checks. They're part of a syndicate. It's not expected that they'll uh, deliver some like extra value or provide a platform support. And then you go way up market to an Andreessen, for example. You know, they have 500 employees. 350 of them work on a platform style function. And I'd say like the Series C investors are somewhere in the middle there. So I do, do think the function is starting to scale as you move up. But, it, it, you know, it, it's a little bit bounded by the resources of the fund. And how do you see the balance between being a resource for these companies and not being a crutch? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, right, I, I'd say like I'm an enabler, but not in the negative sort of way. You know, I'm, I'm enabling these companies to set up the right processes. 
for the ones that we've invested our first checks since I joined Next Coast 18 months ago, I have a really strong relationship with them. Some of our companies have sort of outgrown me. If you think about a Series D company at this point, probably has a functional leader at this point where a platform professional is uh, not as relevant. But I have yet to see someone use me as a crutch. There are a few founders, I think, that rely on me often as a first call. But frankly, like I said before, with the finance function, like I'm happy to do that. If that means that I spend five hours this week making sure their finance function is set up properly and they can go focus on go-to-market or product iteration, I'm happy to do that. Since we talk, we talk about finance and kind of talent, how do you think about almost creating a bench of that talent so that you can say, okay, we, we're now you know, you need that CFO, you need that uh, HR, you know, head of uh, people. How are you building, trying to build that bench totally. out, and where do you find it, especially with, you know, and I've I've heard this recently, where I think we have in Austin a lot of great talent, but because we haven't had that many cycle through, it's like I haven't been like, oh, well, this person has done it three times, this person has done it. So how do you go and hunt it down here? Yeah, on the on the first point, that's exactly what I do. I spend a lot of my time building benches and they can be service providers like companies that provide it or they can be individuals. Sometimes that can be for advising purposes, fractional resources, whatever it might be. So with that, like I also meet a ton of people just because I get referred to them. You know, it's, hey, our former VP of sales is looking for their next opportunity. I do a lot of just prospective talent meetings to understand like who are the key players in Austin, who's really sharp in a deep functional area. Sometimes the earliest of stage companies really need more of the athlete generalist, but I keep that bench. So hopefully there's a good timing match. Oftentimes there's a great role, great person, but the timing doesn't necessarily work. As I'm you know, 18 months in my role now, the goal is that the timing and the, and the role match at the same time. And to your point on finding talent though, I, I do think that's a little bit of a challenge of the Austin ecosystem is I think there is a lot of really good talent here, but because we lack some of the density of the number of people working for startups, like in the Bay where you just run into people working for startups all the time, it is hard to make sure we, we know all these people and we have them all in the same place. How do you identify the talent, the corporate talent that is probably good to jump, but doesn't necessarily, right? Like you don't run into say like, oh, they're going to be at the startup environment, but they probably would be a good fit. How, how do we find them? Yeah. And I actually think that's the power of also really good recruiters. I think I think the recruiting function, whether it's at a startup or the external recruiters that some of the startups hire, is such a powerful way to do that. I think it's really hard to identify talent that could easily make a jump, let's say from Dell to join a startup. I think that's really hard. To your point, there just hasn't been that many, whether it's generations or cycles yet, of tons of people who have left Dell, gone to a startup, successful at that startup, exited, now they're ready for the next startup. So um, that's where I have a, a, you know, a good bench of recruiters to help us identify that. So, Aaron, I want to kind of jump to you here, and we see a lot of different models, and S3 is really interesting because you have one LP, which you don't hear about a lot. It obviously makes fundraising pretty, yeah. either really easy or really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a great model. You know, they, we, firms have been around, like I mentioned earlier, for 18 years, and they've been our sole LP the whole time. And so at this point, we have $900 million under management from them. We closed a $250 million Fund 7 from them in March of 22. And really what that this solo LP means for founders uh, is really three things. One is more resources. Uh, the other is more flexibility. And the third is visibility into where the returns go. And so what I mean by that is in terms of resources, you know, we're set up a little bit differently where we have kind of one combined investing and operating team. 
And if you look at our partnership, myself, and then uh, two others of my three other partners, we've all been CEOs of startups leading it to exit and for one of them an IPO. And so there's both kind of the investing and operational talent, you know, within us. And then because we have that sole LP, it means that we don't have to spend a third of our time fundraising. And so we have more time to spend with our portfolio um, after investment. We probably spend over half our time with our portfolio versus looking at new investments. And then we have a deeper bench of VPs, associates that can then, you know, work on projects uh, for our portfolio companies. And we recently hired a director of talent. Uh, I, I think, you know, we've seen that to your point earlier, both of your points, like there are a lot of great people in Austin, but it's hard to, to collate them. And we, we all still spend a good chunk of our time meeting with prospective talent, but our director of talent's been doing executive search in Austin for 20 years and really helps to build and, and collate our network so that when our portfolio companies need leadership, we can help them find it and find it really quickly. And so just because of that one LP, you know, we don't have a big, our back office is like one person. And so it allows us to spend more of our management fee on folks that are working with our portfolio, on a director of talent, on some marketing resources, all of which is free to our founders and to our, to our entrepreneurs. I think in terms of flexibility, it means we don't have some, we, we have a discretionary fund structure. So we look like any other fund with one LP, but there's more flexibility on things like fund lifetimes. And so we don't have the pressures of, oh, we're at year 12, we've done our 10 years and our two years extension, we need liquidity. And so that allows us to, you know, we've had instances where we've invested in a series A, a B, a C, an E, they went public, it's been 15 years, we haven't sold a share. And so we can really hold, uh, you know, hold shares for, for almost ever, provided it makes sense. And then we can uh, continue to fund up the capital stack. And so while we enter at the seed series A and series B stage, us and eventually with our LP co-investing in later stages means that we can uh, support our companies more significantly at the later stages than a typical early stage firm, which may not have mattered as much in this last like 21 cycle, even 18, 19, 20, but I think is going to matter more over the next five years. And then in terms of visibility with where the, the, the money is going, our sole LP uh, has a family foundation they're effectively donating all their money into, and they spend you know tens, hundreds of millions a year on things like early childhood education, maternal health, nutrition, uh, civic equity and engagement. And so uh, it gives our founders visibility that the proceeds, the profits our LP is seeing from our returns will effectively all be donated to those causes. So I find it interesting, Caitlin, you've been hired 18 months ago, you're on your seventh fund and just hired a director of talent. What, what's the inflection point? What just happened that suddenly now it's like, okay, the platform rolls, this, this new, now is the time to start doubling down on this type of additional, uh, is it the, the competition in the venture environment here? Why the change? So at least for us, a few things. First off, We've been wanting to hire a director of talent for a long time, and it took a long time to find the right person. But I think the other thing is our portfolios expanded. And so as you know, each fund we've raised is bigger than the last fund. As we've grown our investment team, our pace of investing has gone up. And so we are looking around the table and saying, we have more and more open roles and the ability for our companies to get leverage. And numbers might be slightly off because I was looking at this morning, but like our director of talent in the last, gosh, six months, I think has placed like 15 people throughout our portfolio. And so, and then the other thing is like, 
in 20 and 21, like search firms were just charging crazy amounts to hire people. It was like nuts. It made no sense. And so there, there's a lot of leverage to be gained. But um, I, I think for us, it's more of been the, the number of portfolio companies has driven more and more demands for this, this type of work and more and more utilization of it. And I'd say ours is probably in a, a similar vein in that, you know, as you raise subsequent larger funds, the portfolio has just gotten big. You know, we've made nearly 80 investments. You know, the active portfolio is in the high 60s when you account for exits and whatnot. And that, that's just a lot of companies to support. And so the two GPs being both ex-operators, ex-CEOs, want to be super hands-on. The COO and all our other venture partners are also former operators. I think that's, they thought, bring on a generalist like me, I've been an operator before. And we can like leverage that portfolio there. But to your point, there's a really good study out there from the VC platform community. It's a community I'm a part of. There's, I think, close to 2,000 people in the, in the community. Anyone who works in a platform, non-investing operating function within a venture fund can join. And they released this big study a couple months ago around, in their work, and please, you know, please look at the report, funds that have a director of talent, a head of platform, someone in the platform function, over time has outperformed funds that don't. And so I think that's because it's not just about money, it's actually providing hands-on support. Kind of looping back to the changing technology and then as it affects VCs themselves, obviously you're investing in different trends, but we're also seeing algorithmically driven VCs. We're seeing them new softwares that are being actually utilized. One, are either of your firms getting into that game in terms of, you know, how are you using them? What is it being done? Yeah, not to give away like Nexco's secret sauce of where we find our deal flow, but Magic no, ball, no, right? we're not. <laughs> no, we don't use algorithms to find deal flow. But I would say, similar to what I said about the company side, is we have been evaluating some tools and looking at building some internal capability just to bring in data from otherwise disparate sources and evaluate it in a different way. And so from the investing team, you can do that. For example, there's a couple of tools out there that might say, if you invest at the earliest stage, like pre-seed and seed, and seed stage, what do you need to know? You want to know when someone who recently exited a business or a VP level position at a super hot business leaves, because that is an indicator maybe that they're going to start something new. So whether you're looking at LinkedIn data or their Twitter following, there's a lot of publicly available data that previously was hard to synthesize to make some sort of thesis or discovery about something that's going on in the market. That's not really the way Nextcoast invests, but I can see merit to using those kind of tools to find when companies are being formed. On the platform side, how I've been using it, I use a few tools. And again, I'm not building from scratch, but to the point about being able to implement this AI technology, there's a, two, there's a few tools in my existing tech stack that now have AI features within them that, again, are able to pull in information from places previously that I wasn't able to do. So, for example, I have a portfolio company this morning um, trying to improve the way they do account-based marketing. I'm not account-based marketing expert by background. There is certainly someone in the Next Coast network who is. And whether that's someone who's connected with us on LinkedIn, we've emailed in the past, so they're in our CRM. They worked for one of our portfolio companies before. They're investors in the fund. Previously, that was a little bit of a manual and long task to try to find that person. Now I can pull data in from a bunch of different places and query it in a better way. Yeah, I would say if you look at kind of you know, all the tools we use, uh, you know, we, we try to look like a modern startup in terms of the different software we use. You try to eat, eat our own dog food. You know, uh, I, I would be lying if I uh, said that uh, ChatGPT hasn't contributed to some of our investment memos. And so we, we are trying to drive efficiency. I, I think in general for all white collar workers, like you can either get with it or 
get sort of you know left behind. You know, I think we over the last few years have been a lot more uh, intentional on trying to use data to find that founder that had an exit or that founder that, you know, left a company or the founder that's uh, got acquired and they've been uh, at the acquire for two years, which is the common golden handcuffs period, kind of some of that stuff. You know, we could probably do a better job of writing more automated scrapers, but that's, that's something that we've been talking about and thinking about. So I want to get to Austin and the Austin ecosystem. So being here at the Texas Venture Call, Besides investing in startups, what do you see as the role of VCs in an innovation ecosystem? You know, I, I like the Techstars model, kind of the give first, where really the way I think about it is our job is to help as many startups as possible and help founders. Like starting a company is really, really hard. Being a CEO of a company is really, really hard. And to the extent that we can be helpful to companies, whether we invest or not, that builds value for the ecosystem. And, and it'd be great if, if we're able to work with a company, provide resources, connect them to a key hire, make a customer introduction, and then we end up investing and all sharing in the upside. But I, I see this as kind of more of a multi-decade thing where like every time you have a successful startup that raises, uh, raises some money, has a really, really big exit, Yes, you've made a lot of people a lot of money, but more importantly, you have a whole new cohort of people that know how to hyperscale a startup successfully. And all those people are going to be starting companies in the future. And, and so, you know, at some point, hopefully we'll get a bite of the apple to, to make some money alongside uh, the founders. But I, I think the first priority is to generally help founders and companies be successful, uh, whether we're invested or not. One of the rules that I've thought about in general is if you go in with the if the ecosystem thrives, I thrive, I think just kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. I would echo what Aaron said. The three things that come to mind are kind of like free advice or mentorship, connecting to other folks. And then, you know, more specifically on the ecosystem, like many of us, myself included, I'm on the global tech and innovation committee within Opportunity Austin. And so they often ask the venture capitalist community's opinions on how different policy changes, different programs they run would benefit the community. So we try to do things like that. Like Aaron said, we meet with a ton of founders because we think they're smart people solving big problems, not necessarily because we think we're gonna write a check in the meantime, but can we connect in them with someone? Can we facilitate customer introductions? To your point, like everyone benefits when the community does well. So how would you compare the innovation ecosystem here versus the other big superstar hubs, Boston, New York, Silicon Valley. I don't, I don't want to say this. I don't think this is too controversial, but I think Austin lacks two things. I think there's plenty of things going well for Austin, but I think the two things it lacks is I don't think our pool of deeply technical talent is quite deep enough. And I say that we, we did a founder dinner recently. We had about 15 founders, only a handful from our portfolio. And I surveyed them. I said, what's the biggest challenge right now? And it, it was hiring deeply technical talent in Austin. I think we've come a long way when it comes to like front-end software developers, but when you ask people about implementing AI programs or you know deeply technical data scientists, I don't think there's an abundance of that talent in Austin, which as large language models and AI get more mainstream, it might end up being a little bit of an Achilles heel. The second one I'd say, which might be more the controversial one, is it's, it's sort of a blessing and a curse. So if you ask someone in Austin, not at an event like this, but in general, like, tell me about yourself. 
their job is not usually the first thing they say. It is very often my name. This is what I do for fun. This is what I listen to for music. This is my family. And it's one of the first thing I noticed when I moved here from the Bay Area like six or seven years ago. I thought, oh my God, how refreshing. Like, I'm going to talk about something other than work. This is amazing. But I also think that like it, it hints to the fact that work isn't always like the number one thing on people's mind in Austin. Austin likes to be fit and work out into music and culture. And in some cases that might end up being a little bit of detractor to the ecosystem in some ways. Like, I think when you work at early stage startup, like both of us have, like you have to pour your life into it. And so sometimes I wonder if enough people in Austin for some of these businesses are like really, really grinding hard enough to really put Austin on the map. And I say that as someone who's in it, like I'm not, you know, making a negative statement about the community, but it's just something I found. Well, I want to, I want to hold on that because it was really interesting because Bill Gurley was on Bloomberg uh, a number of weeks ago and his comment was the problem that Austin and Austin and Miami combined together said, our problem is we're too fun. And that the, it very much echoed what you had said. And it, and it was funny because I, I kind of stepped back for a moment because now I've never lived in the Bay. I was in, I was in Southern California, but I, I kind of bristled a little more because you're going to tell me people in the Bay didn't have, don't have fun as well. There wasn't this kind of play hard work. Not as much I'd... fun as we do in Austin. Okay, so that's, that, that's an interesting. But it, but it is an interesting that there is this kind of lifestyle first. But when you say this, is it more that there aren't your perception? There aren't enough density of hyper ambitious types of people that are going to be building those global generational startups. Or is it more of a narrative effect because you said that, is that the first thing they're going to say is this is what I'm doing, but they might be hyper ambitious. Really, which it, bucket does it fall into? Yeah, I, I think both are interesting points. I think the density thing is what I'm kind of getting at, too, is okay. that when you're surrounded by other people who are all working in similar work environments, it's sort of contagious. But the thing is, I think there are hyper ambitious people in Austin, but not all of those hyper ambitious people are necessarily working for a venture backed business. Like there's a lot of people mm. who are hyper ambitious in the medical field or in fitness or musicians or artists or in real estate or in construction. There's a diversity of like industry too in Austin that I think, you know, certainly exists in other cities. But if you're in Palo Alto, I mean, the density of people working, high ambitious people working at early stage technology, venture backed startups is just really high. It's been interesting because on one hand, we say that this, you have this, this lack of density, which I, I don't think anybody would take as controversial or disagree with. But then this has been one of the number one place that a lot of people have moved in recently, a lot of heavyweights. So on one hand, it's like you're not having it, but then that's what has been attracting people. Totally. I think, and then, then we have the additional layer of the COVID and post-COVID work from home era, like mm -hmm. dynamic also playing out where, you know, it's contagious to see highly ambitious, hardworking people when you're physically seeing them. Right. And now that companies are a lot more remote, I think that's the other you know thing that hinders us a little bit. But the density is you just don't necessarily like run into this quite as often. Um, and there are some spaces like this one that we're sitting in now and Capital Factory and Techstars, but in terms of density of those spaces, they just don't exist quite as much. No, it was really interesting. I, uh, an episode I did recently with the author, Chelsea Follett, did a book, Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World. And we talked about Athens and Florence and like literally you're walking down the street and you run into Socrates and Plato and then you're, you're in Florence, you're, you're running into, you know, Da Vinci and Raphael. Like literally you, you hit these, just that density of geniuses that are kind of going about. 
that's that agglomeration effect, right? You have you're running into all these different people, and you, you ask, how do you have those kind of creative collisions that happen here, where you just kind of turn around and interesting, hyper ambitious people are here. So I would actually look at it as maybe from the the glass half full perspective of, you know, I, I think there's really the, the 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 two silver linings are one. I think Austin's a pretty friendly place. Like one thing I hear from people that come to Austin. And I've heard this multiple times is like, oh, my gosh, like people will just meet with me. And, and I think there's a there's like a, a friendliness that encourages kind of collaboration and a welcomingness to all the newcomers during COVID and things like that. And I, I think that that's pretty unique relative to a lot of other ecosystems. And it, it's not overly transactional. Um, and it really lets people get here and kind of get involved in the tech ecosystem. I agree somewhat with what you said, Booger earlier said. I take issue with lumping Austin and Miami in the same sentence. And the reason I, I take issue with that is I think, to your point, the density. In that, and I think, by the way, the density of talents improved in Austin in the last three years, probably a decade's worth. Like we've invested in multiple repeat exited founders that have moved here from the coast uh, during the last few years. Um, but I, I think you have your, your, what I call like your tier one, your SF and your New York that probably does have the highest density. But if you look at like some of the other sort of hot cities that have popped up, like Austin, like Miami, I think the difference is Austin hasn't just popped up in that we've had, you know, semiconductor industry in the 80s, enterprise software in the 90s and 2000s. You had consumer growth equity roll-ups in like the, you know, 2010s-ish plus, you know, that, that decade. And so I think what Austin does have going for it is a 20 to 30 year head start on the talent pool relative to what I call like the other tier two or sort of hot markets where like that doesn't happen overnight and it's almost like impossible for that to happen overnight. And Miami may have had a lot of capital flood into it all of a sudden, but in terms of local talent base, I don't think there's a comparison. Well, I recently did an analysis looking at the 21, 22, you know, venture bubble and then the 23 kind of so far, and obviously the, the Q3 data hasn't fully come out yet. But when you look at that and then actually benchmark everybody to 2019, everybody's fallen off except for Boston, Silicon Valley, Austin, and then surprisingly DC. Yeah. So those four cities are up on 2019 compared to 2019. Everybody else is actually lower than 2019. So the momentum that went through we've maintained versus everybody, it was all hype, right? Like Chicago, which went did $10 billion, which was insane in 2022. And now they've gotten almost nothing. Yeah. And so it was a lot more of, you know, the rising tide and everyone kind of doing this bubble. And then now you're kind of seeing, as you said, like a 30 years of foundation being built and we kind of been able to do that. And then it was hyper growth. Like I've also seen some interesting numbers when you look at 2017, like something seemed to have happened in Austin in like in 2017 going forward that really kind of sparked all the, the growth. I finally found what, what, what had happened. And, and Aaron, it's really said like the, I've said a number of times that one of the superpowers of Austin is the culture of helping and the openness of networks and the amount of people who actually say, I'll, I'll connect you. And then they do. It's this crazy thing, especially if someone who, you know, came from outside. But something that I've heard recently and I want to know if you, if you agree with this, is there's been this kind of complaint that there isn't this connection with a lot of the groups from Silicon Valley that have moved here recently. 
Now, I'll, I'll caveat by saying I haven't felt it. I've met a lot of people from Silicon Valley. I've interacted with them. But one is you had a lot of major VCs move here. Briar Capital, 8VC, Bedrock. I, I know that uh, Jeff Lewis doesn't like, isn't a VC, he's an investor, um, as he likes to be called. One is how has that changed the funding dynamic? Uh, are you competing with them? Are you syndicating? Is it really investing in completely different things? How has that changed? I would say kind of in some ways all of the above, but generally the more the merrier. I, I really do believe that the rising tide does, uh, you know, float all boats. I think that we're interacting with them. We're, we've looked at deals with most of the folks you've mentioned. We've shared deal flow. You know, I think we, we have had to be intentional to make sure that we capture some of the folks that have moved here and make sure that these two networks don't diverge, right? And so we've hosted events for, you know, YC founders in Austin, uh, I'm a visiting partner for this cohort at Antler, which is a, a new group in town. Like we are actively doing things. We, we've updated how we do our LinkedIn scraping to make sure we're catching people that have moved here. So I, I really think it's like a mix of like actively doing things to make sure we don't end up with two separate networks. Yeah, occasionally you, you may have a little more competition on a deal, but I mean, we compete in Comavest together too. Like it's, uh, and you know, if, if we compete and uh, one of us loses it and one of us wins, it, it's the Austin friendliness that we see each other at event and have a beer together and, you know, no big deal. But I, I really do think it's really more opportunity and better for the ecosystem to have more sources of capital and it's going to benefit everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. The one thing I just wanted to add, just given who you have on the podcast, we both have an investment focus in Texas too. A lot of the capital that's come here, which has been, I agree, great for the community. I've met a ton of, you know, seed funds who have, maybe they were from Austin or maybe not, moved to the Bay, started a business, exited, decided to start a seed fund, moved to Austin. They're not exclusively, or even at all, investing in Austin-based founders necessarily. You know, Next Coast, we really focus on investing in Texas and, you know, kind of broadly speaking, other coasts outside of the Bay Area in New York. And, you know, S3 certainly has a, a geographic focus. So I think a lot of the legacy in a, in a positive way that well-established players in Austin also have a focus on and continuing to invest in Austin-based businesses. I love having more capital around and generally net-net. I think it's definitely a positive for the community. But to your point on like, is it competitive? I, I think one of the reasons it's probably less competitive is because we have this geographic focus too on investing in the local community. Do, what do you find in terms of the community itself integrating? Do you see the being around and connecting and on the talent side, how, how do you see that, uh, that integration? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it is a post-COVID thing, a post everyone escaped Austin for the hot summer and came back, but the, there's been a ton of events going on in the, in the last couple months. This event, I mean, the number of people, sponsors, the number of cities they were able to get this in, like there's a ton going on. We'll see who, sh you know, if the people who show up are kind of been in Austin forever or new to Austin, but I've certainly met a ton of people from particularly the California recently that have been kind of migrating and integrating into the events and, and similar, we're, we're trying to do events and trying to welcome people from other communities. The benefit, I don't want to make my previous response sound too negative, but the benefit of leading first with, you know, hi, I'm Caitlin and I have two kids and I like to ride a bike, you know, is that people want to be your friend. I mean, people are friendly and people want to make connections too. So this has been a lot of fun. I feel like I learned a lot. I always like to end the podcast with the same question. So Aaron, since you got the mic, we'll start with you. What's next, Austin? I just think uh, growth and scale. Like I, I really do think that the one silver lining from COVID was just 
the speed that we attracted a new group of entrepreneurs, a new group of talent and grew. And I think to your point, you know, we're one of the few markets that hasn't seen a drop off. And I, I do think that it's going to be a tough next few years in capital markets. I mean, we have the highest Fed funds rate in 50, you know, 20, 20 years, right? Like, so, so nobody should have any illusions, but I really do feel like the, the gains Austin has made have been pretty well cemented. And it's almost like given us a whole other foundation to go build on for the next decade. Great answer. And I would echo that. And maybe just to get a little bit more specific, I'm super excited about all things digital health right now. I know you do a lot in this space as well, but I think between the kind of fundamental culture we have in Austin around fitness and wellness, the addition of Dell Medical School, you know, recent addition of new labs in town. There's a lot of things coming together, the backdrop, the talent, that I think there's going to be a real kind of like step change in some digital health companies coming out of Austin. 100% agree on that. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for joining us. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.